I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. About 25% of all of Jesus' teachings were about money and possessions, the corrupting poison of excess. For Jesus, what we now call simplicity is not a self-help minimalism fad. It doesn't begin and end with a closet, a garage, or a bank account. This radical way of life puts excess to death through the purposeful discipline of pulling it up by the roots from every facet of life. I am by trade, as I just said, a Bible teacher. So here's the thing about being a Bible teacher. You have to constantly tell people what they don't want to hear. You spend the better part of your week studying ancient manuscripts and historians and linguists and scholars. And when you finish writing this thing that I'm looking at on this cracked iPad in front of me, chances are it's not what anyone wants to hear. Least of all, you, the Bible teacher. And I know this because for years now, this has been my job for most weeks out of the year. I spend all this time learning stuff that disrupts my comfort, only to turn around and put you through the same thing. And I know what you're thinking. There are scores of Bible teachers who have been doing what I do for infinitely longer, but they aren't here today, are they? I teach the Bible because you and I want to learn how to follow Jesus, and that's how It is and has always been done through the ancient, inspired, and authoritative text that Jesus treasured so deeply. You want Jesus, you have to go through the Bible, and chances are you won't always like what you find. Why would you and I want to follow Jesus when doing so means constantly disrupting our comfort, hearing what we'd rather not hear? Because we believe that his way is best. If not always experientially or intellectually, we know somewhere deep down in the recesses of our soul that Jesus' way must be best. And it's actually not that crazy an idea. It sounds weird to people who don't follow Jesus. It's not unique to Christianity. We have all sorts of platitudes to describe this phenomenon. Nietzsche wrote, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Or, you know, if nihilism isn't your thing, we say things like, the best things in life aren't free, or nothing good is ever easy, that sort of thing. Following Jesus is the ultimate eat your vegetables. Though as someone who loves vegetables, I can't imagine why this caught on. Who doesn't love vegetables? They're delicious. We have better expressions to describe the same sort of thing. In fact, did you know that the well-known idiom, no pain, no gain, popularized by Jane Fonda and the great Arnold Schwarzenegger, originated in 2nd century rabbinic Jewish tradition. Rabbi Ben-Hai says, according to the pain is the gain, all the way back in the 2nd century. So fine, you get the idea, but that doesn't make us like pain. And pain is, in one sense anyway, my vocation. I am here to, among other things, disrupt our comfort. It's like Boxing, it's a hurt business. According to the pain is the gain. We disrupt our comfort for the greater good of the three lifelong goals of following Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus over time so that eventually we can do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And here we go again. So there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is, hey, I happen to like disrupting our comfort 
call me crazy. Lots of people have. But it's actually why I chased down this gig in the first place. I like freaking us all out. It's why I teach. It's what I appreciate in art. Being freaked out and freaking other people out. It's not always the best quality in a person, I'll admit. But it can serve a purpose when you're a Bible teacher. The bad news is, whether I like it or not, having our comfort disrupted isn't easy. Now, here's some insider information. Being a Bible teacher who enjoys controversial teachings most, I've spent my Bible teaching years to date emphasizing certain passion topics like the problem of evil or nonviolence or a theology of politics, that sort of thing. And in my experience, these kinds of things have the unique ability to drive people crazy. They rub people the wrong way and people react. They shout back or they disagree or they leave churches or they publish angry blogs and post whiny podcasts, that sort of thing. But the work that we are about to begin as a church is different. It's every bit as controversial, every bit as uncomfortable, maybe even more so. But this particular topic tends to lumber into the room an awkward elephant because most of the time we know, at least part of us knows, that this is a problem, that it is necessary or worth addressing, but we really don't want to do what it takes to change it. It is like nationalism or military violence or racism or sexism. It's one of the great blind spots of the domesticated American civil religion that masquerades as Christianity. And it is called materialism or consumerism. It is called excess, or you might just call it more. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. If you're new to Van City, or you're watching this online, and you're also new to Van City, here's the thing. Before the whole plague thing started, our rhythm as a church was kind of simple. On Sundays, we would worship by praying and singing songs. Back then, we could actually sing out loud. And we would worship by giving finances, and we'd open up the scriptures, and we'd study them one line at a time. We would take communion, respond to the scriptures with more prayer, more worship, and then we'd hang around eating snacks and catching up. It was a whole thing. And every couple of months, we would pause our normal line-by-line -line work in the scriptures to talk about a new spiritual discipline taken from the life and the teachings of Jesus, or a new principle of spiritual and emotional health and maturity. And then during the week, we'd meet in small groups that we call Van City Communities, in homes and around dinner tables, and we'd begin the work of putting those disciplines and teachings and principles into practice together. What's the point of talking about it if we're not going to try it, right? Remember that? Anyone remember that? Anyway, one or two things happened, yada, 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 and now you can't go to anyone's house, and Ariel hands you prepackaged communion and latex gloves at the door, and there are uh, two dozen of us in here wearing surgical masks and trying not to sing or touch or breathe. It's been an odd year that way. But for a while, we couldn't really have church at all, not in a sanctuary nor around a dinner table, and when we finally got some version of it back, it didn't seem right to cram the old rhythms into this weird new world. So as those of you who have been around for a while know well enough, things changed. And now, who knows what's coming? Maybe, maybe there's some return to certain modes of normalcy on the horizon. What with the vaccine rollout and numbers dropping and all that. But then again, you know, logic and sanity haven't exactly been popular dinner guests during this whole thing. Some people 
are having temper tantrums outside of Trader Joe's because, you know, a weightless piece of fabric resting comfortably over their face for a half hour is simply too much to bear. That's oppression. Or other people, they want so badly for things to be and stay so horrible so they can brag on their little island of moral high ground. Oh, you went to the grocery store? Wow, me? I haven't breathed in a year. I guess I just care about people, but whatever. And at any rate, if there's one thing the last year has taught us, it is chaos. So who knows? So in the spirit of unknowable chaos, we've decided to resume some of our rhythms of the pre-plague world. Namely, this Sunday, we are beginning our first proper spiritual discipline series and practice for the first time in a long time. And this is the spiritual discipline of simplicity. So let's begin by reading Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Let's read beginning with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. In Matt Reeves' 2014 science fiction masterpiece, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, a surviving vestige of human civilization is struggling to restore electricity to their dystopian village after something called the simian flu has wiped out most of the human population. If you know anything about the Planet of the Apes franchise, you already know that as humanity declines is the basic idea. Humanity declines and a hyper-intelligent species of ape is evolving to take their place as the dominant species on Earth. And if you don't know about the Planet of the Apes franchise, then here's your homework. Here's a tangential homework assignment for you. The original 1968 film is fantastic. The following four sequels are horrible. The, the Tim Burton remake is horrible. But the rebooted trilogy, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War of the, for the Planet of the Apes, is not only the greatest science fiction trilogy of all time, right, Michael Dumont watching at home, it could be the greatest trilogy of all time, period. So there's your homework and a bit of controversy, controversy unleashed into the room, you know, to soften you guys up for the good stuff. <laughs> Patrick left angry notes on this, arguing for the Dark Knight trilogy as the greatest of all time, but I disagree and I'm right. And he's not up here, is he? So anyway, in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, one character, Foster, makes an interesting campfire observation in the film. He says of these evolving apes, and I quote, the scary thing about them is they don't need power, lights, heat, nothing. That's what makes them stronger. 
And I was so struck by that observation because it reveals this kind of base human fear of a life stripped of more than just necessities, but also creature comforts that rule our existence. It's the same awareness of some otherworldly power beyond the petty needs of the soft and comfortable world of Western civilization that drove Tyler Durden in Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club. He said, In the world I see, you are stalking elk through the damp canyon forests around the ruins of Rockefeller Center. You're well, you're, you'll wear leather clothes that will last you the rest of your life. You'll climb the wrist-thick kudzu vines that wrap the Sears Tower. And when you look down, you'll see tiny figures pounding corn, laying strips of venison on the empty carpool lane of some abandoned superhighway. In a globalized world of rampant consumerism and shopping extravaganza excess, there always exists a flicker of romanticized escape from it all. In our Black Friday world of shoppers trampled to death in a panicked stampede of sleep-deprived department store zombies willing to kill to save $50 on a second TV, on a vacuum cleaner. The formerly fictional world of 1984 is the new normal. As Alexa listens in, as Siri takes note of your scrolling habits and clicking patterns so they can populate one of the dozens of screens that surround you on all sides, broadcasting quirky, sentimental ads for vacation spots and better jeans and more stylish bedsheets. The nonstop propaganda parade of all things you're missing. Up and down your fake little feed, other people have cooler houses and better vacations and better looking spouses and cuter children and more visible abs. And even the entirely fabricated veneer of some fake life on Instagram is an ad. And what's wrong with you? That you are missing out on everything. Studies show that the average American might encounter some 5,000 advertisements a day and, totally unrelated, that same hypothetical average American has over 300,000 purchased goods in their home. We consume twice as much material goods as we did 50 years ago. The average home has tripled in size during that time, and that home, though it has a two-car garage, can't fit either car because said garage is overflowing with clutter. One study even found that there is 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every American, meaning we could sleep the entire country's homeless population in storage units, but we use those spaces instead for items so inconsequential to our everyday lives that we keep them mostly inaccessible just so long as we can keep them. And then that same overstimulated and overshopped and storage hoarding average American has a credit card debt of $15,000. And for all the stuff we drool over and chase after and pile high, every study, narrow and wide, correlates a decline in happiness and satisfaction with an increase in stuff. In his book on simplicity, Richard Foster described consumerism as a rival religious philosophy about what constitutes blessedness. He argued that we in the West are guinea pigs in one huge economic experiment in consumption. And that's not even a Christian rant. There is a veritable mountain of writing and published work detailing the mounting horror of excess and the toll that it is taking on our lives, our children, the planet, our very souls. And yet, sociologists... Robert Wuthnow rightfully argued, and I quote, we live in a materialist culture. 
We want money and possessions, and very few, very few people have heard a powerful voice telling them to resist those impulses or how to resist those impulses. Organized religion has not done a good job of challenging people to examine their lifestyles. And he is, I think, right, because though simplicity was core to the teaching of Jesus, the church of Jesus in the modern world has often represented those teachings poorly, not at all, and in certain expressions of church, it has taught the exact opposite, that more is better, more is blessed. The prosperity gospel is alive and well and rebranded for millennial hipsters. And then, what's wrong with you if you don't get the promotion or the better house or more money? Did you sin or has God abandoned you? Did you not pray hard enough? Was there not enough faith? But it's not all Hillsong and Joel Osteen. Often the church has taken up the world's enthusiasm for more without the obvious vulgarity of the prosperity gospel. Make more, save more, get more, more revenue, more business, more brand, more stuff. More is better. The church often talks about 10% of your income without much to say about the other 90%. And we've built defense mechanisms to keep the teachings of Jesus at bay. So we say, well, we only want more stuff because when we get it, we will be so generous. You'll see, we swear. But Jesus taught that it was better to give things away than to keep them. Better as in you should do more of the former, give things away, and less of the latter, keep them. Or... Another popular defense mechanism that has sort of grown out of the millennial woke movement is that simplicity is a privileged concept for the rich. Simplicity, the woke movement argues, has nothing to say to the poor or even to those with nominal income. Simplicity is a privilege. Simplicity ignores need. It's easy to talk about simplicity when you could have more or less, when it's a choice you get to make. What about those barely scraping by? But with respect, I would argue that this kind of pushback misunderstands the fullness of Jesus' approach to simplicity. For Jesus, what we now call simplicity is not the self-help minimalism fad that has proliferated amongst books and podcasts and documentaries. It doesn't begin and end with a closet or a garage or a bank account. Jesus warned against the deceitfulness of wealth, as we just read. Yes, he insisted life was not found in possessions. Yes, but for Jesus, the radical way of life that puts to death the ways of excess is something that engages in the lifelong discipline of pulling it up by the roots from every facet of life. Simplicity of possessions, yes, and simplicity of speech and time and pleasure and experience. And like I said, something in us already knows that the way of excess is a dead museum. It doesn't work. Everything we've learned from the scriptures and from science and sociology and psychology and the human experience is screaming at us that excess promises joy and satisfaction but stalls out on the dead road of emptiness. Nowheresville, USA. The weeks ahead for us as a church are an opportunity to learn the teachings of Jesus and to put them into practice. Simplicity is a teaching to which I've given a lot of thought personally, but I won't pretend to be the world's greatest practitioner 
of simplicity. My wife, Abby, might be left to her own devices. I think she would get rid of everything that we own, and we would sit in an empty room with our voices echoing off the wall, and she would feel very satisfied. But no one, aside from Jesus, has the perfect handle on simplicity. We all have gaps and blind spots, and I'm figuring out like everybody else. But I've taught at lots of churches about simplicity over the years. I've given lectures and done Q&As and offered techniques and book recommendations. And there was a time when I, I, I felt way more aggressive about the whole thing. I still feel very strongly about what I think is an often overlooked and completely essential teaching of Jesus, as you'll see in the weeks to come. But I've learned over many conversations and years with many people that like everything in discipleship to Jesus, there are different seasons and stages to this thing. So don't hear my whole setup about how Jesus intends to make us uncomfortable and mentally check out. Don't preemptively bum hard and make alternate plans for the next few Sundays. This is not going to be this hardcore, guilt-laden fire hose of teaching and practice. No one, no one is going to come and count the items in your house and shake their head in judgment this week. That's a joke. No one's going to do that at all, but it's a funny idea. This is not a guilt trip. This is an invitation. And as counterintuitive as it often seems, this is an invitation not to more control, but to more freedom and more joy and more contentment. This is an invitation to a better way of life for you and for your community and your family and for others. This is an invitation to follow Jesus. So before we finish, let's look at Luke 12 one more time. Beginning in verse 13, we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this person is inviting Jesus to take his side, obviously. Hey, tell him what I'm telling you to tell him. He wants his greed endorsed based on what seemed normal and fair to him and to his culture. It's not that weird a request based on the world in which he lived. But then in verse 14, we read, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, the Greek word that my Bible translates as greed is pleonexia. One uh, lexicon defines that word as an insatiable desire and lust for more and more. Be on guard against an insatiable desire and lust for more and more. Jesus' gripe isn't even with the stuff per se, it's in the desire for more, which is typical of Jesus, more difficult to eradicate than the stuff itself. Though, I would argue, and I think you'll see, getting rid of the stuff is step one in getting rid of the desire for more stuff. He goes on in 16, he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Notice the language, the ground yielded the harvest, not the man. This is Jesus' subtle reminder of God's provision of good things. Verse 17, he thought to himself, the man, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, this bit is kind of lost in translation to our very different culture. But Jesus was not speaking to Americans, not speaking to hyper-individualistic society with a religious value on privacy and personal property. So in Jesus' context, it was kind of funny. The obvious answer to, answer to this self-absorbed farmer would have been, what, what do I do with all this extra stuff? You share. Obviously, you share. The best way that I can update the comedy of this scene 
is by reminding you of the scene in Dumb and Dumber when Harry laments that his hands are freezing and Lloyd just casually remarks, oh, here, you can have my second pair of gloves. My hands are starting to sweat. You remember that bit? In it? Yeah, okay, great. So it's kind of like that. That's this guy. He's Lloyd. Obvious, he's oblivious in his selfishness to the needs of others and to his excess. He has extra and he hasn't even given thought to the people around him in need. So verse 18, he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and then I'll store my surplus grain. So the idea is he's going to Dave Ramsey it. He's going to build savings and invest and diversify and live off the dividends. And then in 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So the goal in the investment is his comfort, his pleasure, his satisfaction, his consumption. Why save and hoard? For me. And here's my favorite part, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? So at the, at the end of Jesus' story, the guy dies. It's hilarious. Verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. And remember the context. Jesus is telling this to someone who just came up and said, hey, tell my brother to share his inheritance. He's reminding us, as he reminded them, listen, you are going to die. Responsibility is one thing, and we'll talk about that as we go. But all your organized scrambling to profit and save and invest, you, you are polishing the brass on the Titanic because none of it will matter when you are gone. But to be generous, to give more than you keep for yourself, this will teach us life to the fullest, now and in the age to come. This kind of talk from Jesus isn't unique to this story. In fact, Bible scholars estimate that around 25% of Jesus' teachings were on money and possessions. 25%. That'd be like if one in every four of my teachings were about money and possessions. I don't think anyone would care for it. Jesus wasn't a church leader and he wasn't fundraising his nonprofit, at least not a church leader in the sense that we think of them now. He wasn't fundraising a nonprofit. In fact, there are scenes in the Gospels where Jesus is depicted as not having any money at all. On more than one occasion, he has to ask someone else for just a coin so he can use it as a teaching demonstration or to pay a temple tax. But Jesus wasn't going around trying to fundraise his nonprofit. He, he was interested in freedom and salvation. He was interested in the soul. Jesus knew the destructive power of excess. So he taught, it is more blessed than to receive, or to give than to receive. The word blessed, as in it's more blessed or blessed to give than to receive. In Greek, the word is makarios. It can be translated as happier. You will be happier when you give things away than if you kept them for yourself. In Matthew 6, as Ariel read just a little while ago, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, deserve, or you cannot serve both God and money. It's not that you shouldn't do it. You cannot do it. He says this in Matthew 19, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, if that wasn't strong enough language, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
meaning it is so ridiculously difficult that it is almost impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, without God himself, it would be impossible. Ridiculous to the point of hyperbole. Now, as an aside, rich, by the way, describes most, if not every single person in this room in a global context. If you have a home or if you rent an apartment or if you live inside or if you have more than a couple of dollars or electricity, if you have food to eat, etc., you are rich compared to most of the whole world. And one interesting thing about Jesus' teaching on money is that it's a lot less pragmatic than some of his other teachings. He doesn't, for example detail the right number of possessions or offer specific budgetary advice. Here, you know, here's the line items in the spreadsheet. Mostly when Jesus talks about money and possessions, he simply describes reality. He's like, oh, this is the way that it is. Giving is better than getting. You can't serve God and money. You have to pick one or the other. It's almost impossible for rich people to find the kingdom. It's just the way that it is. And understanding this, the subsequent New Testament authors continue Jesus' teaching. In 1 Timothy 6, we read, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Yikes. Or in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. All your life, the world will tell you that more is better. More money more things, more experiences, more travel, more work, more shows, more words, more pleasures, more. And we often sort of dial ourselves down thinking that that might apply to the insatiably wealthy that are always after the next big thing. But I think it applies to almost everyone that I've ever known. We always think that if we just had a little bit more, we would be satisfied. We compare our paycheck to the person beside us and think, why don't we have what they have? We always want a little bit more. And typical of Jesus, he disrupts our comfort and challenges the message that is overwhelming us on all sides. No, it is not true. In fact, it's a lie. The opposite is true. More is not better. Less is and out of the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus, out of the writings of the New Testament and the practices of the early church, grew the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity. It has lots of different names. Monks called it frugality. Some people call it plain old simple living. The social trend adapted from the way of Jesus is called minimalism. But it's helpful to clarify the exact definition of simplicity by clearing away what it is not. Simplicity, or if you want to call it minimalism, in this sense anyway, is not a genre of design. It's not an aesthetic. That's something else. This is not about feng shui. Simplicity is not a method of organizing your life. Now, organization is often a byproduct of simplicity. If you have fewer things, it's easier to keep them in order. But that is not the motivation, and that is not the point. 
You can embrace simplicity without being organized, and you can be very organized with no simplicity whatsoever. Simplicity isn't about, is not about holding up a, a pair of socks and asking yourself whether or not those socks spark joy. Um, that's what we in the business call crazy talk, talking to your socks. And <laughs> finally, simplicity is not the minimalism fad. I think that's important. The minimalism fad is about self-help and self-improvement. And there are, of course, inevitably overlaps with the Jesus tradition. There's some great wise stuff. But Jesus' teaching on simplicity is about more than just your stuff and your happiness. It's about justice and goodness and generosity and discipline and self-denial and discipleship. It's about learning that there is more to life than the here and now. Remember Jesus' parable? It's about the age to come being generous with God. Well, we'll get into all that as we go. For simplicity's sake, oh, I didn't even intend to make that joke, but as I said it, for simplicity's sake, here's a definition, a couple of working definitions for you. Richard Foster defines simplicity as an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status and glamour and luxury. Beautifully put, but pretty complicated. A good friend of mine also has a great way of uh, defining it. He writes, simplicity is limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom of Jesus. So, think of these weeks as an experiment in living. We are going to talk about reassessing life in light of Jesus' teachings. It is, after all, why we're here. No one is going to shove you into the deep end. No one is going, no one is going to come berate you and count your shoes yet. Uh, I'm kidding again. No one's going to count your shoes. Rather than worrying about whether you can swim in the deep end, look at this as an invitation to move gradually into the shallow end and to see what happens. Think of this as an experiment in seeing for yourself if Jesus was right. We'll walk you through all sorts of ideas throughout this practice. We'll look at the scriptures, church history, and what we think are best practices for us in the here and now. In my experience, when someone invites the Spirit of God into this often closed off area of their lives and discipleship, he will often lead and compel us in different ways. Some people, having tasted the freedom that Jesus offers in simplicity, go splashing into the deep end like excited children. It's a beautiful thing. For others, it takes time and experimenting Conviction, conversation, and community, ideas, workshopping things, trial and error. My encouragement to you is to follow the Spirit's prompting on your life. He might ask you to do something radical, or to begin with, He might ask you to do something very small. Follow where He leads. The practice for this week for you and your community, whether you're spread out outside or on Zoom or some other model, whatever it might be, the practice is at vancity.church slash simplicity. It's interesting the way different teachings of Jesus 
find us in different seasons of our lives. If you didn't know, we write these practices together with our friends at Bridgetown Church in Portland. That's the church that planted ours, which means that I meet with a team of pastors and leaders to brainstorm and sort of plan these things out together, and we schedule them and write them. And Bridgetown had sort of already began this particular practice as they were finding their footing in the pandemic world. And I remember asking them, hey, listen, how's it going? We're not doing it yet. We're going to do it later. How has it been? And they, their team told me that there was pushback. And mostly that pushback was the whole, you know, this isn't a good time to talk about simplicity. What with the virus and the layoffs and the closures and people sick and dying. And I totally get that and so did they. As I said, it's why we made changes of our own to the way that we did church and do church. But with respect, the teachings and practices of Jesus are not contingent on seasons and chaos and suffering and unpredictability. Simplicity is the best way of life in seasons of little and seasons of much. It is the best way of life in seasons of stability and seasons of outright chaos. Because the truth is true at all times. The teachings and practices of Jesus are the doorway to freedom when our lives are organized and flourishing and when they are crippled by suffering, anxiety, staring into the fog of an unknowable future. The truth is true all the time. And the truth often disrupts our comfort, but the truth also, in Jesus' language, sets us free. These weeks are an invitation to discover something that Jesus knew thousands of years ago and that perhaps rings truer now more so than ever before. So, if you're up for it, let's follow Jesus into freedom together as a church. Let me pray over us and our communities before we worship again. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.